In Deuteronomy chapter 27, my goal is actually to go four more chapters. I don't know what in the world's gotten into me the last couple of weeks. I think it's just this whole impossible, conquer the impossible thing going on. You know, do hard things thing. So we're going to go right to the Lord in prayer. We've got um, some, a lot of fun to have in God's word. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much for the privilege today of being able to open your word, expecting you to speak. Thank you for what you're going to do in this time. Thank you, Lord, for every person who's come here expectant. Expecting, Lord, today for you to speak, to minister, to profoundly minister now. Please have your way, Lord. Let this be beautiful time spent. May we be captivated in your word. May we have so much fun in your word. And Lord, may we see its deep application in our lives. So let this be rich, proper, beautiful. I love you, Lord, and I thank you for the privilege today of being able to sit before, stand before your, your family, your beloved Please, Lord, redeem every second, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. In Deuteronomy chapters 27 to 30, we have a covenant. And might I say, as a Brunidus, you know, it would be the title as well, The Covenant of Law and Altar. We'll see then in our first set of verses here, from verses 1 to 8 of chapter 27, how God lays out this issue. There are going to be two mountains, ultimately, that when the nation of Israel crosses over into the promised land, they are to set people on both of those mountains, Mount Ebol and Mount Gerizim. And the Levites proclaim these verses, this covenant, It is a covenant where all we're responsible for is is to listen and obey. To listen and obey. And I I recognize that for many of us, we can be very duty-driven people. And in being very duty-driven, the law is so appealing to us because the law is just a checklist. It's a box to tick. And that's an easy thing to look at because we can feel like we have some sort of control. We can feel like when it's done, it's done. It's accomplished, and we can mark the box. It's relationships that get messy when you think about it. Tasks are easy. People are difficult. The reason people are difficult is they're constantly changing, and it requires constant investment. God makes clear to us that God looks at us not as a task, but as a relationship. And that he wants us to look at him the same way. And that is the difference between the law and the altar. The law will be a task. The altar will be a relationship. In chapter 27, we begin in verses 1 through 8 with the law and altar set up. Then he'll tell us that the day has become this day We've become, or they've become, a precious, set-apart people. On this specific day, as God now lays before them this covenant of relationship. Not a promise, 
That's a task, but a covenant that demands relationship. And from that point on through the rest of, the, of these chapters, there will be this laying out then of whether you want to lean to the law or whether you want to lay on the altar. In chapter 27, in the simplest sense, we might say it's the regulation of the law and the altar. In chapter 28, it's the repercussions of the law and the altar. In chapter 29, it's the recognition of the law and the altar. And in chapter 30, it's the restoration that comes at the covenant of the law and the altar. So it is the regulation, the repercussion, the recognition, and finally the restoration that comes. In the end of it all, God wants to start a revolution, and that revolution is one of reverent relationship. It'll demand personal relegation. I have to be willing to put myself under this God. And that takes faith. But if I don't have reverence for God, I will never obey Him. Reverence just means that something is big, mighty. And we can look at our problems as big and mighty. We can look at our fears as big and mighty. Or we can look at the one who conquered it all as big and mighty. And the difference will be simple. God tells us to fear Him. And if we fear Him, we'll fear nothing else. And if we don't fear Him, we'll fear everything else. So look at it with me. Chapter 27, look at our first eight verses. It says, Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. That will be the requirement if you want to lean on the law. And it shall be on that day when you cross over the Jordan to the land in which the Lord your God has given you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them. If you're a student of the New Testament, that familiar, that term should be really familiar to whitewash. It's what they did with tombs as well, so you didn't step on them and become ceremonially unclean. Jesus will speak to the religious leaders in Matthew 23:27 and speak and call them whitewashed tombs. Paul will speak and call them whitewashed walls in Acts 23:3, a whitewashed wall. What do we do with these stones that we've washed now bright white? It says, you shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land in which the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, your, the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you've crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones. So let's just do this. Forgive me, but we have to choose sides here. It's, it's painful almost. Pray for us before we get to Matthew where Jesus has to separate the sheep and goats. But with the altar in the middle. But there's Mount Ebal. So can you say Ebal? Now come on, there's one, three of you. Mount Ebal? Okay, now, come on, give me something here. Mount Ebal. Okay. And then Mount Gerizim. Thank you. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. Now, on Mount Ebal, it tells us here that you shall set up these stones. What are on these stones? The law. Interesting. It says, which I command you today that you shall whitewash them with lime. But there, not on Mount Gerizim, but Mount Ebal, you shall build an altar. To the Lord your God, an altar of stones just like the other stones, except these aren't whitewashed. As a matter of fact, you shall use no iron tool on them. They're natural. And you shall build with these stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice 
You shall offer peace offerings and you shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. Now, he doesn't say, notice, you shall set up the law and rejoice before it. He doesn't say you shall set up the law and do sacrifices before it. He says you're going to set up the law on which mountain? Ebal. Come on and give it to me. Which mountain? Right. Thank you. You're going to set up the law on Mount Ebal. And it's whitewashed and the law is there. But what else are you setting up on Mount Ebal? The altar. Now, this is not carved stones. These are uncarved stones. And there you're offering two sacrifices. You're offering the burnt offering, and notice the order, and the peace offering. The burnt offering, I remind you, is the one offering. Many of you went through Leviticus with us, and we didn't go quickly. You remember that the uniqueness of the, of the burnt offering is the one where everything is burnt. Not just the parts that you wouldn't eat unless you were Scottish, but, the, but literally all of it. You burn the whole thing, and that's important. Because the idea is simple. There is a total surrender. It's the same idea we get in Romans 12.1 that says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. It's the same sacrifice, by the way, that Abraham would have offered Isaac to be. A total sacrifice, a burnt offering. It takes total and complete surrender. But then it says, also, there's a second sacrifice. What's that one called? The peace offering. And it's important to recognize what that offering is again. That's the one where you burn the parts you shouldn't eat, perhaps. And then you take the rest of it and you have a barbecue with God and the friends around you. And the idea is simple. You are celebrating that you have peace with God. There, there can be no peace without proper relationship. There's the difference. The world defines peace as a great cosmic mellowness. And we can suck into that. That's why people, in essence, try to empty themselves. If I can empty myself of all of my discord, I'll be okay. The problem is, exactly how long can you do that in this city? You're like, I'm feeling peaceful. Well, there goes my inner peace. But the peace that God speaks of here is a peace between him and us. And it comes at complete surrender. God's complete surrender, by the way. Interesting. What mountain is that on? Mount Ebal. Are you with me so far? Now follow me on this. Look at what it says. Verse 9. We're writing the law. By the way, we're whitewashing that. We're doing nothing to the other. We're making it very clear. By the way, the same thing they're going to do with tombs. This is in verse 9. Then Moses said to the priests and the Levites who spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. This is our responsibility. He does not call us to results. He calls us to obedience. It's simple. Listen, take heed, listen, and obey. That's it. If you're willing to listen and you're willing to do what I tell you, I'm willing to do the rest. Verse 11, he starts separating. And look what it says. Moses commanded the people on the same day saying, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim. Raise your hand if you're on Mount Gerizim. Thank you. To bless the people. Guess what you get to do on Mount Gerizim? You get to bless the people. When you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. These shall stand on Mount Ebal. Which of you are on Mount Ebal? Some of you don't know where you are. You will stand on Mount Ebal to curse. Oh, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. 
Already we see a very big difference, don't we, between the two mountains. Of the two mountains, which one would you want to go to? I think I'd rather go to Mount Gerizim, right? As a matter of fact, to this day, the Samaritans, when they have Passover, Pesach, they offer a lamb on Mount Gerizim. Because if you had a choice between the two, wouldn't you rather be there? So this is the mountain, if you will, of blessing. This is the mount of curse. And there's a valley between for you to pick your mountain. Are you with me on that? What I find interesting is, which one is the law found on? Yeah, on the curse. But wait a minute, which one is the altar found on? Why? Because God needs to meet us at the curse. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And because we were dead in our trespasses and sin, then people don't get up and change mountains. What needs to happen is, is that God needs to meet us. And it tells us, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. We've already read that chapters prior. And now, and by the way, again, reiterated in Galatians about the fact that Jesus had to die on a cross. Because if he didn't die on wood, he wouldn't have become the curse for us. But he had to become the curse. Interesting, what we'll discover later is that that particular altar like the one we see in in Exodus, is at the foot of the mountain, not at the top. Because God is not asking, listen, listen, he's not asking us to climb the mountain to actually go to the altar. He's asking us to go to the mountain and him to come down. In order for us to see total sacrifice, God has to come down. We do not elevate. Elevate is what would happen with the law. But actually, having God descend is what happens at the altar. And there's the difference. The law is, how do I ascend? The altar is, how does God descend? Do you see what I'm saying? And this becomes the fundament for the entire rest of these chapters. Do you want to lean on the law? You'll find a curse. Do you want to lean on the altar? You'll find blessing. At the altar, you will find obedience, but the difference is, our obedience is out of the relationship we have with them, not just not to go to hell. And that becomes the problem in modern-day Christianity, if we're not careful, is we're so content with the fact we're not going to hell, we're disobedient, because somehow we don't realize that there is still a responsibility as a family member. And God calls us to that now. So listen, here we are, two mountains. We've separated our tribes. That's what's going to happen. I remind you, it's on the other side of the Jordan. So God's already making plans for something that hasn't happened yet. It's a Jordan, and it's a, it's a, it's a rough river to cross. But he says, you'll get past it. Don't worry. I mean, I know right now this thing is raging. I know right now the currents, like if you feel like if you step in, you're just going to get swept away. This thing seems impossible. Interesting. When we get to the book of Joshua, listen, listen, it'll tell us that God will stop the Jordan at a place called Adam, next to a town called Zertan. Yeah, whoop de doo Jordan, Yordan. Dan means judgment. Yor means from. Jordan means flows from judgment or from judgment. God is going to stop. Actually, God is going to use Joshua. By the way, you're probably aware of the Hebrew name for Jesus. Poor bird. All right. Uh, God is going to use the Hebrew name for, for Jesus. And this guy is going to stop, listen, the flow of judgment at Adam. What does Adam mean? Man. Zeratan means their distress. God is going to cause us to cross over the flow of judgment. He's going to stop the flow of judgment at a man beside their distress. Do you get it? God knows what he's doing. So he's like, I already see, listen, I've already seen you. You know what the problem is? God already sees us past it. We just don't, right? 
So we look and we see this thing and it's huge and it's flowing and it's, and in essence, taunting us because it's overflowing. It's the spring. It's the time when this thing really overflows its boundaries. It's flooding over and it's taunting us. There's no way you're going to get past this. You're going to die in this. You're going to go under. You're done. And God's like, but when you're on the other side and you're like, what do you mean when? I'm still figuring the if. God's like, you're going to need to follow me. But I've already made plans on the other side of this. And on the other side of this, we're going to stand here and you're going to still have a choice to make. Interesting. When you cross the Jordan, you're still going to have a choice to make. Well, follow me on this. Now, it will pick up, obviously, because if you're like, how in the world are we going to get through four chapters? But we're moving nicely. He'll tell us again. I remind you, there's two mountains. What are the mountains called? You are? And you are? Which one is the mountain of blessing? Okay. Which is the mount of cursing? Okay, interesting. And where's the altar? Okay, one other thing I want to point out, and we'll move through this now. Because I remind you, this is the setting for the rest of our chapters. That what they mean. Interesting, because the term ebol means stony. The term gerizim means cut open. Does that sound like anything else God has referred to in Scripture? The heart. God actually tells us in Deuteronomy 10 and in Deuteronomy 30, we'll get there soon, that he is going to circumcise the stony heart and cut it open. And I find it interesting because I, the stony heart, well, that's a bull. That is not Gerizim. That is the place of curse. It's the cut open. Now, the problem is we don't like to have our hearts cut open. We don't like to feel. We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to suffer anymore. We don't want to invest and try, and who knows what could happen. And you know what? That is a city mindset. Let's just be honest. It's like you give a little bit, but the moment it seems a little iffy, you're gone. Because I don't want to get hurt again. God says, but you want to live in that place? You feel like you're safe, but you're still living on evil. But if my heart's cut open, I'm going to suffer. God's like, yes, you will. Let me make that clear. But you'll also feel joy. And you'll also be able to love. You cannot love with a stony heart. Mrs. And the Levite shall speak with a loud voice, verse 14. And they shall say to the men of Israel. Now notice, by the way, in this, he's going to list out, if you will, in this, he's going to list out some curses. Twelve things here, if you will. And it says at the all of at each one of them, it says the people shall answer amen. So this is a simple call and response. I'll say it. You guys get to respond amen. Or amen, if you prefer. Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. Wow, that was really... See, that came from a bowl. Where was Gerizim? Wow. Effort for keep trying. Curse is the one who treats his father or mother with contempt. You realize this, you guys get to do this too, right? You still get to amen this. Curse is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. Curse is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. Now wait a minute, really? God has to put this in here? That's like 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 the natural propensity is oh look a blind guy, let's send him into the streets. But what about us? What happens when we reach out to the spiritually blind? Can we do that? Can we sort of 
do something Jesus-esque and sort of placate our conscience, but still, in essence, lead them off and have them wander off the road because the road should be the road to Jesus, not just to us or to our church. Can we do that? And the people shall say, Cursed is the one who perverts justice do the stranger, the fatherless, and widow. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. God has to put this in here. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. Really? Anyways. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. And there we go. We've had our first of the chapters. And we've seen now the regulation that comes with this law on altar. Do you want that? Well, now we split it up. In chapter 24, what we're going to see in the first 14 verses is the blessed life of the obedient. There'll be at least 24 things. That's the life of the altar. And then the downward spiral of the disobedient. And there'll be at least 80 things God really wants to make clear. And that's the law, 15 through 68. Listen, notice again the requirement of obedience. It tells us, Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you observe carefully all of his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Did you notice the term overtake you? We're going to see it on the blessings and the cursings. And let me just warn you, you are going to be overtaken one way or the other. Choose which way you want to be overtaken, by blessing or by cursing. That sounds like such a simple choice. Until obedience gets involved. So listen the way it works. You'll be blessed in the city, in the country, the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground, the increase of your herds, your basket, your kneading bowl. When you come in, when you go out, when the enemies rise against you, they'll be defeated before your face. They will come out against you one way and flee seven ways. The Lord will command blessing on your storehouses, on the land. He will establish you as a holy people to himself. Verse 9, it says, if you keep his commandments and walk in his ways. Then all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they'll be afraid of you. Verse 11 says, I'll bless you with plenty of goods, the fruit of your body, the increase of your livestock, the produce of the ground. Open to you his good treasures in the heavens. He'll give rain in the land in its season. I'm very thankful because sometimes rain isn't great, but in its season it's perfect. To bless all the work of your hand. To lend to many nations, but never to borrow. He'll make you the head, not the tail. You'll be above and not beneath. You're going to be above it all if you're just willing to listen and obey. If you heed the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and be careful to observe them. You shall not turn aside from any of the words in which I command you this day to the right or to the left, or go after other gods and serve them. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And of course, don't you wish to just end it at verse 14? What's amazing is how many times people will quote these verses, but they won't do the if. You realize God is a cause and response in the sense that he wants us obedient. And he really, it isn't like God goes, oh, well, now I'll bless you that you're obedient. God wants to bless, and our disobedience restricts him from being able to bless us. It's in our obedience that God's like, I just want to open my hands and bless you. But please don't make, me, don't make my blessings become a curse, because all you want to do is do something selfish with it. 
turn away from me. God doesn't want to give you anything that turns you away from him. So in verse 15, notice again, if you don't obey the voice of the Lord your God, but observe, nor observe carefully his commandments and his statutes, all of them which he commands you this day, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Do you notice again in verse 15, the overtaking? So listen the way it works. And can I just say, I'm going to lay this out, if you will, like the downward spiral. This is where it starts. In verses 16 through 20, your flourishing falls. It fails. Your fruitfulness. You started by thriving. You were full of joy. You were, things were amazing. And then you, you veered just enough from the relationship. And joy is the first thing to leave. Or you're still trying to do the same stuff. You're still trying to pretend like everything's cool, but you know it's not. But you are trying so hard to put on the show, you're exhausted by the end of the night. Because people knew you as somebody that was indestructible, that was indefatigable, that was impervious to the circumstances around you. It didn't break your stride. It didn't stop your smile. It never dropped your shoulders. You kept going, and it didn't even seem to affect you. They were like little paper men running into you. But once we start moving from the relationship, little things become big things fast. And the first thing is your joy leaves. So this is the way it looks. You'll be cursed in the city, in the country, your basket, your kneading bowl, the fruit of your body, the produce of your land, the offspring of your flocks. When you come in, when you go out, you'll be cursing and confusion and all that you set your hand to until you destroy it. And we're going to see that over and over and over. And the word destroy, by the way, simply means to just be loosed. You see, in the Hebrew mindset, God holds all things together and things are orderly. The moment that God starts to take his hands off of something, it starts to fray and spray. And that's what he says is happening to your life. It starts by your flourishing falls and your fruitful, your flourishing fails and your fruitfulness falls. The next thing is verses 21 to 27, and that's a day-to-day drudgery now. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he's consumed you in the land that you're going to possess. Strike with consumption, fever, inflammation, severe fever, burning fever, sword scorching mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. Heavens above you will be like bronze. The earth below you will be like iron, powder and dust until you're destroyed. You'll be defeated before your enemies. You'll flee seven ways where they would have before. Now you are. You'll become troublesome to all the kingdom. Your carcasses will be food for the birds. There'll be boils of Egypt, tubers, scab, and then this scary statement, the itch which cannot be healed or itched. Do you want an itch that can't be itched? So this is what it starts with. It starts with the joy leaves. Fruitfulness falls. Your flourishing fails. And then it moves to this drudgery where that which would have seemed very easy, now all of a sudden, even the things you enjoy, you're not enjoying anymore. And here's down, and it's the, the issue really is, how far does this have to go before you're willing to say, God, what's wrong in our relationship? And can I just say this out of love to you? Are you looking for an excuse to fail or a reason to overcome? Because the moment you say, I would have a good relationship with God, but... You are looking for an excuse to fail, not a reason to overcome. Well, it starts again with the, the, the joy drops 
The second thing now is life becomes drudgery. Verses 28 and 29, then you start with the mental breakdown. The Lord will send on you madness, blindness, confusion of heart. You'll group on the new, you grope, sorry. At noonday, as a blind man gropes in darkness, you will not prosper in your ways. You'll be only oppressed, plundered, and no one's going to save you. And this is where it goes next, is that you're, you just start feeling like you're losing your mind. Those things that were easy and they were easy to perceive, those judgments. And the way it works is that all of a sudden those things that were so small can't be seen small anymore because the joy is gone. Do you know, remember how the joy comes? I remind you, joy comes, it tells us, in his presence is the fullness of joy. That's Psalm 1611. And look, if I want to try to do this religious thing without him, I can't expect the abundance of joy. In the day-to-day drudgery, it's Jesus who told us in John 10 that he's come that we would have life and life abundant. But if we're not going to cling to him, we can't expect that. He told us in John 15 that if we abide and cling to him, we'll bear forth fruit. But if we don't cling to him, we'll be like a dried-up vine. We can't possibly flourish there. When it talks about this, understand it's his Holy Spirit ruling and reigning over us that tells us that the Lord has not given you a spirit, listen, again to fear. In 1 Timothy 1.7. That means there was a time when you had a spirit of fear. Where fear was what ruled you. Where fear is what dominated you. Where fear was the thing. And he says that is where you were. But God hasn't given you that kind of spirit again. You already know that spirit. But he's given you the spirit of power. Of love. And a sound mind. And when his spirit rules and reigns. But I can't have a sound mind if I'm running from God. Because running from God is insane. Verses 30 to 43, things become fully futile. And there'll be 22 things he'll lay here. And the idea of it is, I'm working harder, but I'm getting less from it. He says, you'll be betrothed to a wife, but you'll never be able to lie with her. You'll build a house, but you'll never be able to live in it. You'll have a plant a vineyard, but you'll never gather its grapes. Your ox will be slaughtered, but you won't even get any of it. The donkey will be violently taken away, donkeys, but you won't get it back. Sheep will be given to your enemies. Your sons and daughters will be given to other people. You'll be only oppressed. You'll be crushed continually. You'll be driven mad looking for these things as you see them. Your knees, your legs, severe boils. They will set over us a nation which your fathers haven't known. They'll serve God. You'll serve gods of stone, wood uh, there. You'll become an astonishment and a proverb, a byword. You'll carry much seed, but you'll never gather it in. Because the locusts will eat it. You'll plant vineyards and you'll work them, but you'll never get the grapes or the wine. You'll plant olive trees, but you'll never be able to anoint yourself with its oil. With your children, they will not even be yours. They'll go into captivity. You'll have to give birth and then you'll never even get to keep them. The locusts will consume everything from your land and the aliens will consume the rest. And you will come down, verse 43, lower and lower. And this is what happens is all of a sudden drudgery becomes futility. And some of you know this so well. It's like the harder you work, the less you get out of it. And you're like, but wait a minute, I know I'm supposed to seek first the kingdom of God, but I don't even have time to seek first kingdom of God because I'm so busy trying to do more and to do more. And God goes, if you did, if you were with me first, not as a task, but as a relationship, the other stuff's going to happen. And the crazy part is if we look back, we know that. We know that. We watch what happens when we put him first. And we watch God bring this forth. And then we walk away from it and it becomes its own addiction. We are determined to prove to ourselves we can do it. And we're throwing ourselves on those stones, the whitewashed stones. 
saying, I know I can do this. I know I can do this. So I just tried harder and I stayed up longer and I worked harder. When Solomon was walking with God, money came from everywhere. It would seem like he had to go. It seemed like he had to bathe in gold. But as he turned his heart away from God, he had to tax the people more and more and more and more. And we'll do that too. We'll try to use up our friends with things that only God can provide. And we will exhaust every resource around us and those poor souls that are trying to help. God's like, look it. I want a relationship with you. You can't get it at the law. It's got to be at the altar. And so I go, things just, I lose my fruitfulness. I lose my joy. I think becomes, things become drudgery. I start to go, I lose my mental perceptions. I can't judge like I used to. I can't even tell what's right or wrong anymore. And it just seems like everything is so futile. Verses 44 to 48. And now hope and authority are abandoned. Now you're the one who has to borrow. You're the tail, not the head. The curses that should have been on those who pursue you now are falling on you. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord to keep his commandments, his statutes, which he commanded you. It shall come as a sign and a wonder in your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Wait a minute, for the abundance of everything? Do you see that there in verse 47? God's like, I gave you more than you need. You've never lacked. So why are you freaking out the next time that something is required of you? And you feel like you won't have it then. Have I ever failed you? You'll serve your enemies. You'll be hungry. You'll be thirsty. You'll be unclothed. You'll need everything. And there'll be a yoke of iron around your neck until you're destroyed. And I see this, beloved. I watch this in people. And it's the thorns that grow up and choke the life out of good seed in you. Because you love the Lord, but somewhere down the line, you just got to the law. And so now instead of throwing yourself on the altar, you're throwing works on the altar. And they're very different things. You're like, God, you've got to be happy. I read. I prayed. I I even witnessed today. God's like, I don't want you to do anything for me. I want you to do everything with me. And that's what you're robbing. Because everything we offer God, Isaiah says it this way, and pardon me for being so blunt. He says that our righteousness is but filthy rags before him, literally dirty menstrual cloths. When we say to God, this is what I've done for you, God's like, look at Every time we try that, what we're saying is, look at what I've done without you. How could that bless God? Finally, 49 to 62, desperation and darkness. The nations will come from afar and they will besiege you until you're destroyed. You'll, everything, it'll get so bad that the refined man will be completely unrefined. The refined woman will hide her placentia Placenta, to eat it herself from her starving family. Until finally in the last verses, it'll be total helplessness. And I say it this way, destruction, dislocation, and desolation. I mean, it's plagues, prolonged plagues, plagues, prolonged sickness, diseases of Egypt. Every sickness, every plague will be few in number, will be scattered to the point finally where we'll just be living in fear with no assurance of life. And we'll be at the point where even our enemies won't want to buy us. And he goes, this is what life looks like. And you say, why would God allow this? Can I just say it as bluntly as I can? God wants you miserable. 
without him. Why would he ever want you at peace without him? I can take a cardboard cut out of my wife. I can walk around with it. It'll represent her. If I take the picture right, maybe it'll even look like I'm with her. I can talk to it. It won't talk back, of course, but I can talk to it. In America, in carpool lanes where you're required to have more than one person, maybe I could put it in the passenger seat and even get away with it a couple times. And I could feel like everything's cool and copacetic. But I have no relationship with my wife doing that. I could be gone forever trying to tell everybody how much I love her. But if I don't spend any time with her, she has a reason to doubt. And the moment that I start loving what she hates and befriending her enemies, she has a good reason to doubt. And if I see anyone that actually intends on destroying our relationship and I nestle up and get cozy with them, she has a great reason to doubt. And then I look at my relationship with the Lord. No wonder why James says, to be a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. The world has declared war on our God. What am I going to do about it? Here's the good news. That God's law is only part of it. I remind you, this is the covenant of law and altar. Our first 14 verses, if I live at the altar, it's a blessed life. The remainder of the chapter, it is one of a downward spiral. The good news is God then takes our chapter 29 and he starts bringing us back to the recognition of this covenant. What we need to recognize, by the way, is the person who's behind the covenant. That this is not simply a law laid out for people. The covenant's not a law. The covenant is a commitment to relationship. Look at the first verses, verse t- chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant in which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. This is a different covenant then than the Ten Commandments. Moses called all Israel and he said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials in which your eyes have seen, the signs, these great wonders, and yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes and ears, eyes to see or ears to hear to this very day. I've led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread nor drunk wine or similar drink that you may know that I'm the Lord your God. In other words, you haven't had to live on your leftovers. Have I ever had a day that I could have opened up my closet and said, I have nothing to wear? Not in that spoiled Western world middle class. I've always had clothes to wear. Matter of fact, I've always had so much clothes, I could probably actually clothe a small village in some places in India. Maybe even a larger one sometimes. Have I ever, ever, ever had to beg for food? Never. There was a time when I first gave my life to Christ, I was still living very unsaved. And I spent a period of time homeless. I was removed from the place that I was staying. Obviously, can't be homeless and not be. I never once had to beg for a meal. I've never watched my shoes wear out without a new pair. I've never 
I mean, the only problem with my shoes wearing out is I have to tend to wear the ones that wear out quickly. And the only reason why they'd have, you know, that I'd ever wear them is because I like them, not because I won't change them. I've never had to worry about where I'm going to eat, what I'm going to eat, or what I'm going to drink. Verse 7, it says, And when you came to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, doesn't that just sound like a giant? Og. I should do his way. Og. King of Bashan came out against us. Notice us. It's a battle God took personally that he was part of the camp. Og didn't just come out after you. He came out after me too. And that's why we conquered them. Notice that in verse 7. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. That's on the east side of the Jordan. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all you do. God's like, look it. Can we look at my track record for a second? Do you realize what we're getting in this covenant? Because I want to bless you. I don't want your life to be miserable. I only want it to be miserable if you're running from me. But what I really want is to be with you. And if you're willing to be with me, if you're willing to invest in that relationship, I want to bless you. Let's look at our history. Have you ever had to beg? Have you ever had to worry about your meal? Have you ever had to worry about your clothing? When the giants came against you, do we not have a history of taking down everything that came against us? Has there ever been a time where you've gone down and you've never come up? Has there ever been a time where you were fearful? Sure. But that's not my choice, that's yours. And they seemed invincible. And they would have been had I not been there. But this was not you, this is a we. Because we have a relationship and I'm committed to you. And because of that, I want you to live at the altar where I totally surrender and I want you to too. Where we can have peace together. So that I can bless you the way I want to. Look back at the giants. Your Egypt. Those addictions. Those fears that once ruled you. That emptiness that drove you. The insecurities that owned you. Do you remember those? You remember them well. Where are they now? They're slain. And the land is yours. So why do you think God says, well, that's it. You're on your own now. How could he possibly desert us now? We've come way too far. Verse 10 of 15. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, the stranger who's in the camp, the one who cuts your wood, the one who draws your water. I want you all in this. I want you all entering into this covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord God made with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you. Just as he's spoken to you. Just as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. Do you know who he's speaking about there? He's talking about you. He says, I want to be your God, and I want to establish you. 
When you plant a tree, often as we buy them here, they can be quite flimsy. You have to stake them. That means is you, the, you want it to grow a certain way, so you put some stakes in the ground, you wrap some twine around it, so you hold the tree up because it's really in no place to stand yet. And you tell your kids to stay away from it because if they run into it, they'll uproot it. Then you'll have to start over. But sooner or later, sooner or later, sooner or later, that tree will grow. And you will not even see the way it grows at first because the way it grows is down. It gets deep where it can draw nourishment. Interesting. Trees know that stuff. They don't. I mean, isn't it weird that trees don't just be like, oh, look, all the roots are on the top. Oh, we got to flip this tree. It doesn't know what it's doing. Trees encoded into its DNA is the ability for it to know how to go down for nourishment and how to go up for light. And God planted his word in you. And the more I go down in humility, I'm growing. And the more I grow up in light and prayer, I see clearly as I'm in his word and rooted and established. That's the word. And you grow down, rich, and wide, and then you grow fat. Not flabby. You grow strong. And then you bear fruit. Then pity the car that runs into you. Now before that, it could have been a toddler that could have stepped on you. But now, you pull out that Bentley, and it's a total, because you ain't moving. And he says, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. I want to deeply ground you in, the, in, in, in where I am, in my soil. And it tells us this in Psalm 92.13. He who is planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. And we want to isolate and we want to run. We want to insulate. But God says, I want to plant you here and I want you to get solid. That's what I want to do. But you can't get solid at the whitewashed rock. You can only get solid at the altar. There's the point. Finally, let's move through the rest. So it says then, verses 16 to 18, the apex. For you know that we dwelt in the land. Did you notice there's a we in that too there? Moses, of course, is speaking. We dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came, of course, with God there. We came through the nations which you passed by, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone, silver and gold, so that there may not be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord your God. Notice it doesn't say just disobey there, but turns away. Where we can still do all of the right stuff, but 
somehow in our house where you can't see, there's a little piece of gold that doesn't belong there. There's a little piece of stone propped up, and I'm staring at it, getting direction. There's a little piece of iron or a little piece of wood, and I'm going, this is my piece. And it's a bottle, and it's a porn addiction, and it's a secret chat, and it's a secret this, and it's a whatever, and you know they're just idols. God tells us that even stubbornness is like idolatry when he speaks to Saul in the Old Testament. And he goes, in rebellion? That's like witchcraft. Which, by the way, God never said, that's really cute, get your picture there. God says, it's an abomination to me. I don't want Notice it doesn't just say that you turn away. In verse 18, it says, whose heart turns away. God knows the difference. Because your body could be in one place and your heart in a whole nother. And you'll serve the gods of those nations. God goes, I don't want you that. And notice that it says, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. God's like, you know, it sits inside you. That's the problem with that root. And it grows beside the tree. You can't tell until it cankers the whole thing. And you usually don't know you have bitterness until it explodes out of you. God says, look at, I want to found you strong. But you'll never be found strong with bitterness. It'll suck the sap right out of you. And I want you to stand with me today. I want you to stand with me today and say, yes, Lord, I want to live at the altar. So, you want to let yourself become bitter? You want to let your heart turn away? You're still at church, but your heart's turned away? You're ticking boxes, but you're not investing in a relationship. Now you're straying away from love, and now you're living at the law. Well, then your life becomes tragedies. 19 to 29, plague, sickness, brimstone, salt, burning in your land. There's no more fruitfulness. It's overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 25, he says, because they've forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them, and he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They once served other gods, worshipped them, gods they didn't know, that they had not given them, anger that, that he had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against the land, bringing on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them, uprooted them from the land in anger and wrath and great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. And he says this, that secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now listen, God says, your fall will be testimony to everybody else. They'll know I mean business. So understand, even in your foolishness, even in those moments, and maybe today you recognize it. Maybe today the Holy Spirit says, this word's for you. Oh, you are full of energy and you're trying so hard. And I don't know how far down that spiral you are, but you know it. And it's like, it's futile and it's madness and it's no joy. And it's just, there's just no, everything just seems empty 
and you're just trying so hard and you're getting nowhere with it. And all of this is happening. And God says, you know, even in that, it's going to be a testimony to those around you. I, I know how to use everything for good. But here's the good news as we have one last chapter. Chapter 30, tucked into this covenant, is the right and restoration of return. And I'm here to tell you today that if you turn to the Lord, and you may say, I don't even know how to do that. Can I say this? Can you just give him permission to do it? Because maybe if you don't know how he does. God's not asking you to perform surgery here. God's asking for you to throw yourself on the table of the theater and letting him do his work. But that takes abandon. And he's going to carve out of you any root of bitterness. He's going to take that heart of stone that has happened out of whatever it's caused that you may feel you have good reason, but it's an excuse to fail. And he's going to crack it wide open. And he's going to circumcise it open. And he's going to pour forth his love in there. That's what you're robbing yourself of. Look at our last chapter as we bring this around. He says, Now it shall come to pass when these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse that I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Interesting. If you see what God speaks about when he talks to the church, when Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, he says, oh, you do all this stuff and you know all the right things and you know how to do all the right tasks, but you've left your first love. And you can hear God hurting in this. He says, listen, remember from where the heights that you've fallen. Remember where you came from. Remember how beautiful it was up there with him when he picked you up and put you there. And then he says, and repent, which means change your mind. And then return. Do the things that you used to do with me. Do you see that here? When you call them to mind, that's remember. Return to the Lord, that's repent and obey. Do those first things. According to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and all your soul, there is why the altar is total, right? It is, remind you, what is the first of the sacrifices of the two at the altar? It's the burnt. And what is that? That is all your heart and all your soul. Half-hearted keeps a heart hard. But if you will do that, then the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. He'll have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are driven out from the farthest parts of heaven, God, there's no place I can't get you, is what God's saying. I don't care what the addiction is. I don't care what the perversion is, how deep the darkness. I'm not afraid. I know how to get you from there. From there, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you will possess it. You will prosper. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. You'll be blessed more than you've ever been. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put these curses on your enemies. All those horrible things that happen to you will now go upon the enemy. Wouldn't that be awesome? And on those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again be 
Obey the voice of the Lord and do his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and in the increase of your livestock and in the produce of the land for good. The Lord God will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord, your God, keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and all your soul, this is the point. God says, I want to get back with you. I want a relationship with you. I don't want this to be just another box to tick. I am not just a task. I am not a task at all. I am a God who loves you. And when you turn to me, I am going to run after you like the father after the prodigal son. In Romans 11, this is exactly what Paul says about the Jewish nation when he says that if they stumbled so, stumbled so much that they've fallen permanently, God says, certainly not. But to provoke to jealousy, salvation has come to us that are not Jewish. And if their fall is riches for the world, their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. And he tells us in verse 28 of that same chapter, don't be ignorant of this mystery or wise in your own opinion. Though blindness has happened to Israel, that will happen until the fullness of the Gentiles. There will be a day when enough of us have said yes. And everyone who will say yes will say yes. And God's going to bring the nation Israel back up. But for that to happen, they need to turn to a relationship. So this is the commandment, verse 11, that I command you today. It's not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. These should sound familiar to you because it's quoted in Romans 10. It is not in heaven that someone would say, who will ascend for us to bring this up that we may do it like the, the, the Mount Ebal. We don't have to climb up to get it. Nor is it beyond the sea that we'll say, well, who will go over to the sea to go and bring it back to us that we may hear it? The word is very near you, just like the altar is on the ground for you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. And this I command you today to love the Lord. There's my command to you. You want one command? Just love Him. The Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Keep His commandments, His statutes, His judgments. This is what it's going to look like to love God. That, he would, that you would live and multiply. And that the Lord God will bless you in the land. Bless you in this land. Bless you in this land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you don't hear and you're drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land when you cross over to the Jordan to go in and possess. So I call heaven and earth as witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants both may live. That you would love the Lord your God and that you would obey His voice. That you may cling to Him because He is your life and the length of your days. You're never going to find life anywhere else. And no one should know that better than us. That you would dwell in the land. That you would dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Listen, God says, I just want your love. Give me that and everything else will fall into line. That's what I want. You can't live with a hard heart and I don't, you can't live with a half-hearted anything. I want it all. I want it all. And it comes at your love. With your love, everything else falls into place. But you're just going to have to love me.
And that's a choice you make. And he says, listen. I call heaven and earth as witness because this isn't far away. You don't have to climb to get it. You don't have to go over to the sea or say, who's going to go up there and get it for me? Who's going to go across the sea? I have put it right in front of you. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 10. Listen, 9 and 10, as we bring this to close now and pray, he says, look it, it is not far on. It is in your mouth. And this is it, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you'll be saved. If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus, God says, I've said it at you, and all you need to do today is accept. But what if you have accepted the Lord and now that relationship's become a task? What happens now? Can I remind you, and some of you know this from studying, what first John, was it written to believers or was it written to unbelievers? It was written to believers. Because he says, I write to you who know the truth. Those who are strong in him and overcome the wicked one, who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. There it's to believers. And yet in that book to believers, to believers, to believers, he says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us, cleanse us, cleanse us from all, not some, not most, all unrighteousness. And all unrighteousness means is every place you've been, that's not where you belong. And he says, man, just agree with me. Lay it before me and let me put you right today. So I'm going to do something we, we don't do here often. I'm going to invite you to either commit, if you haven't yet, or recommit your life to Christ today. And look, at if you're solid with the Lord, don't feel like you have to stand up because someone else is standing up near you. But today, if we're going to recommit to the Lord, we don't do that quietly. If we're going to recommit to the Lord today and say, Lord, this is about relationship and you have the right now to search and seize. You have the right to barge in and remove. You have the right to do whatever, but get me to that place where we are right in our relationship because I want to be founded in you and I want you to prosper. This isn't so that this is a prosperity thing of doctrine. This is about me being living life because you are my life and this has to become right. This has to become central. And with that, then, Lord, put me where you want me and prosper me there in the way that affects eternity. But that's the decision you're going to make. And can I just say today, I have set before you two mountains. And I've set before you life and death. And I've set before you blessing and cursing. This is the difference. This is a matter of life and death. What do you want to do? Can I just say honestly, as your pastor, it may just look like I'm standing because I'm standing here to call you to stand, but I'm recommitting my life to the Lord today. And it isn't because my life has been in complete shambles. It's because I don't want anything in between us. And I just want to be confident today that I've given him that choice, not just leading you in a prayer. So look, at if none of you stand and this was just for me, I'm cool because I know it's for me. But today, I'm not walking out of here hard-hearted. I am not walking out of here saying, God, this is what it's got to be. I'm walking out of here saying, God, your will be done, not my will. And I just want to hear from you, and I just want to obey, and you know how to speak fluently. And if you've got to cut, then you've got to cut. If you've got to let go, you've got to let go. But whatever it is, I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to follow you with whatever that I've got. Because you're going to have my love. So I'm going to pray and give you that opportunity here in a moment. Pray with me, would you please?
Lord, I know that there is some within our family um, church in Mass that talk about your sovereignty, and you are clearly sovereign. But Lord, I never want to omit the fact that though you are completely sovereign and we are safe in you, Lord, that I never want to lose the fact that we are responsible for the choices we make. And here it's very clear and evident. This is not about just saying something at church. This is committing to commit for the rest of our lives. As as, as much as we are able today to give you permission today to remember what it really means to prosper in you and all the circumstances in the world around us cannot change our commitment to you if we are looking for a reason to overcome, you are it. If we're looking for an excuse to fail, there will always be a circumstance to lean on. But today here in this room, I recognize that there is a choice that need be made. And that choice that needs to be made today is one that says, I don't want anything No hidden pieces of stone, no hidden chunks of wood, no hidden silver or gold, no hidden anything, no hidden ambition, no hidden dream, no hidden anything. But God, I recognize that no matter where I think I can find peace, it's only going to be found at total surrender at the altar in love. And wherever I think I'm going to find joy, it's going to be at the altar in peace when I surrender everything. And then if I feel like some kind of respite can happen somewhere else, I can't run from me. Lead me to that place where you first and foremost are my peace. And there are some in this room, God, and they are labored. They are heavy laden. They are, their shoulders are dropped and life is rough. It even hurts to breathe because of where they're at in life. And yet, God, today you've told us that if we could come to you that way, you would give us rest. We could come to you thirsty, but we've got to believe. And in believing out of us with torrent living water, not just come to you, but to believe, to trust and lay our lives upon you and say, God, your way is best. It may not be my way, but it's so far above my way. So right now in this room, Lord, as I stand here and surrender to you, I just pray that you would lead others to stand with me. Let's say, Lord, today, uproot any bitterness, whether I know I have it or not, uproot any bitterness, remove any idolatry, remove anything today that would keep me from you, that would turn you into a task. Saints, if you want, stand with me now. Lord, I just say today, lead me that this would be more than a momentary reaction beyond a knee jerk. But Lord, today, that this would be the commitment you're looking for, a commitment of love to our relationship, to invest in our relationship. And God, that you would rip from me anything that is in competition with you. I confess that the payment you made on the cross, when you didn't ask me to climb the mountain, you came down from it. And you died on that hill for me. Because you, God, came down from heaven to pay my price so that all my sins were properly paid. Just like Scripture promised. And you were buried in all of that filth. All of that filth was laid in that tomb. And when you rose again, you left it there. With the grave clothes, you left it there. And with that, Lord God, I just pray right now for the new life you call 
that if there's anything that is not in conjunction with that new life, Lord, rip it out of us. Convict us. We lay it before you now. And saints, right now, if you're standing with me, if there be anything, anything right now that you know you need to confess, even if it's under your breath, just say it to the Lord right now. Lord, this is who I am. This is what it is. If there's anything on your mind, let it just be said so it can be done with. God, this is it right now. Lord, now I just want to tell you I love you. But let it not just be some feeble kind of love, but pour forth in me the kind of love that you have, that I can pour forth that love you pour into me to you and to these precious brothers and sisters. That I could become a better husband to my wife, a better father to my children, a better leader to my family, a better pastor to this church, but first and foremost, that I could become a greater lover to you greater lover of you. So now ignite me with a joy beyond my original commitment. As David would say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But Lord, give me a joy beyond that. Let me sense even right now, God, right now, maybe let, let us all sense your delight, your delight in us as we surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, please, for those who stood today, please today, cement in our hearts that conviction as we walk with you now. Let this day be radically different. In Jesus' name.